Hi, Julie. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Even though it's a gloomy, gloomy day here, I'm, I'm feeling good and excited. We've got less than two weeks before we're back in our happy place. Okay, so tell me why you're great. Cause that's really, I want to hear why you're great because I'm not feeling so great. So I want to hear why you're great. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I guess I get really, <laughs> I want to hear why you're not feeling great. I just, I get like at this time of year and we haven't had this in several years. Like, you know, April always just makes me happy because it's springtime. Like we start coming, I, I, you know, everyone who listens will know this. I just do not enjoy running in the winter. And April reminds me that spring is coming. And um, it's just, it's always like such a, happy time for me and it just you know Boston's coming up so I don't know I just get in a good mood just um, getting excited about about Boston uh, we just had um, the cherry blossom 10 miler here which is another kind of April tradition it just it's back into the normal rhythm of April for me relatively um, so it just like made me really happy it was really nice to be back um, at cherry blossom this weekend and we can talk about this more I was very sad that you missed it and that you weren't able to come for a good reason, but we'll talk about that more in a second. So that didn't quite feel back in the rhythm of things, but just to be back out on the National Mall on a beautiful day, we had perfect weather. I hope we didn't ease up our perfect weather mojo because it was perfect weather. And it just was so nice to be back uh, with everyone. And it was, I mean, essentially a totally normal race. There were, there were no COVID protocols. All Everything has been lifted here in the DC area. So there were really no COVID protocols in place. Um, I think people were still being cautious. All of the medical staff all had masks on. Um, you know, I think people were still very respectful, uh, but it was nice to be back. So that, that's, that's why I'm great. Tell me about your race though. I want to hear about it. And because you were there and I wasn't, uh, talk a little bit about how amazing our runners did too. Yeah, that was, um, I, you know, I think everyone's spirits were just really high. Again, it was a beautiful day, but we were all back. Everyone just was in such great spirits. And I think that um, really lends itself to a great race. When you go in with a good mental attitude and you're just grateful and, um, you know, you just run with gratitude and joy, it just lends itself to having a great day. And, um, you know, I, I actually went into it, I will be honest with you, with a lot of doubt. Uh, I have not been back at Cherry Blossom since April of 2019. Um, yeah, April of 2019, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yes. April 2019. We did have April 2020. I have not been back. I did not do the October race. This, I didn't do the last fall race. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't do that. Right. The, the uh, cherry blossom in 2021 was in September, was September, I think. And I did not do that one. Can't remember. I had another race somewhere. I had Philadelphia distance run around that. So I didn't do it. So I've not been back. Um, and, and I just didn't know where I was. Um, COVID's been, you know, I haven't done a lot of racing over COVID. My training, I, I told you this before, and I mentioned this on the podcast before, I'd say a good 95% of my training runs, if not more, are at nine to 10 minute mile pace. I do not run anything faster than a nine minute mile. When I finish and a few runs I finished in like 8.58 average, and I'm like, ooh, I went under nine minute miles for that. I'm not trying. I'm just not, I'm not going out and doing speed work. I'm not really trying. I'm just getting out and getting in the miles and doing it more for, you know, just mental health and stress relief relief. Um, and so, you know, that's a really long time to not, I've done a couple, uh, you know, half marathons in the past cu couple of years. Uh, I did Philadelphia distance run. I did uh, Rehoboth. So I had a few little kind of checks, but nothing that felt really great. And so I just went into this not really knowing. And um, I've always run under 110 at Cherry Blossom. And I thought this year, I thought, you know what, probably not going to break 110 this year. I think I'm not in that kind of shape. And, and I went into it not just really with no expectations. I'm wondering how the heck if I run nine minute miles in training, will I run anything faster than a seven minute mile? Like how could I run two minutes per mile faster? And I just figured, you know, I'm just gonna go out and see how it feels. So I started out um, with some of our uh, MCRC um, racing team teammates and kind of just tried to stay in step and check in with my breathing and check in with my effort. And um, I looked down and my first mile was 640. And I thought, wow, that's a little fast. Like I need to reel it in. That's, you know, I'm not gonna be able to sustain this. And so I thought I you know, reeled it back. I really felt, you know, felt good. This is a good example though, of when we feel race day adrenaline and race day magic kicks in and a pace that I never could have, I mean, like I told you, I never could have imagined holding that pace felt easy. And so you really do have to kind of keep an eye on it. Um, hit the second mile, 640. <laughs> I said, all right, <laughs> I really have to like, at some point I need to get under control here. Don't, I don't worry as much in a 10 mile race because I know if I start to crash. It's only going to be the last few miles. It's not going to, you know, in a marathon, I'm obviously much more careful, but I thought, all right, well, let's hold on to this effort. See how it goes. Hit mile three marker, 640. 
So I had three, six, 40 miles under my belt. I knew I would not be able to sustain exactly that, but, um, but I sustained um, sub seven miles for, for most of the race until I hit Haynes Point when it gets a little bit harder, the wind, um, and just, it's a little, you know, monotonous on Haynes Point. And frankly, I'd gone out a little too fast and knew that it was going to catch up to me a little. So I thought I was hitting sevens, but um, I finished in 109.18. So um, came in under 110 um, and surprised myself, to be honest. And I think it's just a good reminder that if we're putting in the work and we are running our easy miles and building that aerobic base, that um, even if we can never, cannot imagine being able to hit the race paces that um, that that we should be able to hit based on our fitness and um, that that we can do it on race day. So uh, I think that's just a, a good reminder that, um, you know, I, I see so many people who, you know, say to me, wow, that, that long run today was horrible because I ran you know, 30 seconds per mile slower than I normally run. Well, you know, that's okay. It's not horrible. That's part of your training. And that's what the, the purpose of your easy runs are is, is that is that aerobic building. So if I can run, um, you know, what is that? Two minutes and 20 over two minutes and 20. Yeah, you know, some of my runs are three minutes per mile slower than that 640 pace. Plenty of them are. Um, so if, if I can do that, then I think that's just a reminder that it, your, your training is not um, it's not race day. You know, it, that, that's your that's your fitness building. Uh, race day is race day. Those are great reminders. And I so appreciate you mentioning this because, you know, I think also with your training and I do the same thing. When you run very easy and you build that aerobic base, you're not just building an aerobic base. You're also, that's allowing your body to recover better between runs. So even though you didn't taper before cherry blossom, part of the reason that you were also able to get into that gear is because you weren't broken down from your training. You got to the start line a little bit fresher than if you had pounded uh, the weeks before. And how is your nutrition um what did you do during the race for nutrition um uh well first of all um i actually did not use um i will, I will back up i will say the couple of days before i did make a, a concerted effort to start upping my like my carb percentages and just making sure i was getting more quinoa more rice more um you know just some of those i generally rely on pretty simple carbs so some bread some just just making sure having some cereal um in the morning having oatmeal instead of some you know a different option um instead of peanut butter and jelly i was having oatmeal or something just the last couple of days before that the night before also making sure you know it's almost like a marathon prep meal just you know by sushi having having food that was um, that was definitely, you know, again, sort of along the lines of what I do for marathon prep the morning of, I mean, that's really important to me too, is making sure you're getting, I'm getting in enough carbs, um, the morning of. So I had oatmeal in the morning when I woke up and I brought a cliff bar with me in the car and I had had about half of the cliff bar in the car. And then when we got there and we parked, I had like a little bit more of the cliff bar. So I probably had a good hundred grams of carbs in me before a 10 miler race, which is not, you know, some people may think like a 10 miler race, I don't need to, I don't need to fuel up prior to to running, but I really had kind of carb loaded for lack of a a better word. I really did pay attention to the carbs that I was, my my intake the days leading up. And so I know that for a, you know, 69 minute race, I don't need fuel. And if I was going any longer than an hour and 15 minutes, I certainly would have taken like a Morton or something about 30 minutes in. I know from past races that I, I, I'm, I'm okay as long as I'm fueled well before. So I did that. I had um, actually I popped a couple um, salt stick endure, uh, uh, chewables, the fast chews before I left the house just to be, I knew it wasn't going to be super warm. Um, that was the one mistake I made. So it was uh, mid to upper forties, I think when we started, but it was sunny and I actually made the bold and I, I, I'm somebody who tends to dress too warm. Like I, I remember the, when I ran Marine Corps marathon, my first marathon ever, I think it was probably 55, 60 at the start. And I wore leggings and a long sleeve shirt. And I remember people in the corral asking me, are you taking those off? And I was like, no, I have nothing under them. Why would I take them off? So I remember, I, and I remember being very easy to find myself in the photos. Cause I was the only one with leggings on. So I could see, so I generally tend to dress too warm because I don't like to be cold. So I debated that morning back and forth, back and forth. Do I wear shorts? Do I wear leggings? Do I wear shorts? Do I wear leggings? And um, I ended up going with shorts, but long sleeves and a little bit heavier long sleeve because I just didn't want to be cold. And I even brought um, my run mitts gloves and one of our ear covers headbands just to keep my extremities. And as soon as we got started off the start line, 
I was like, I overdressed on the top. <laughs> I knew it was going to be a little too warm. So I actually took off our headband and tossed it at a water stop. I felt kind of bad, but hopefully somebody picked it up and could even wash it and use it. And luckily the run mitts gloves, you know, fold back. So I folded those back. Um, but I was definitely a little bit overheating on the top. I will say it was, it was the, the top was too warm. So good note to self that when it's, you know, approaching 50 degrees and it's sunny out, that was the other thing was the sun. When it's approaching 50 degrees in sun, I can, I can certainly maybe wear arm warmers and roll those down. Um, just a good, good mental note. So I think um, races like these uh, that are leading up to maybe a big goal race, like for us, Boston are good um, kind of test, uh, test runs of nutrition, of gear, um, just reminders of, you know, oh, okay, well, you know, if race day is going to be 45, I I'm going to go with short sleeves or, or a tank um, and maybe arm sleeves just to keep myself warm at the beginning. Um, so yeah, so, uh, so that was my nutrition and, and my, my one little, I wouldn't say snafu, but what one would have done differently. I would have worn short sleeves. I think it was the only one with long sleeves. I looked around, I was like, oh man, people have like sure sports, sports bras on <laughs> and singlet. And I was like, yeah, I overdressed. You know, I'm the same way. I feel, I think you and I just have a real, um, aversion to being uncomfortably cold, even if it's for a minute. So we tend to lean into wearing a little more, but you're absolutely right. And I do think that, um, you know, as you get older, your body, your body tolerance to heat is, is less. And therefore, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, that long sleeve top wouldn't have bothered you as much. And that's just something to note for folks too, that, you know, we're always learning from these races, even if we've been doing them for a long time. So first of all, congratulations. I'm so happy to hear you had such a great race. I'm happy. It was such a great day. And I was thrilled. Our runners had a great, had great races too. That was, I was going to say, that oh was really the, that, that's probably what left me on the biggest high. In addition to just having a great race and being a beautiful day and seeing all of our running friends and the community back out there. Um, I got to stick around after and connect with a couple of our runners who we don't normally get to see in, in person. Um, so one of our runners um, from the New Hampshire area, from um, New England, was down um, to run the race, and I got to connect with her, and we've coached her for many, many years, and I've never met her in person, so I got to see Jen Caracaglia, and then um, uh, Debbie Cohen was also there. She's one of our runners who lives um, locally, but not uh, not immediate, not in the Montgomery County area, so we don't get to see her a ton, but I've seen her at a couple, couple of races. Um, we saw her in Boston last year. And uh, she had an amazing race. She ran her fastest 10 mile time in six years. And I should note that she is 65. So to be running a, you know, an age group PR, not even an age group, like a two age group PR, um, she's just been doing phenomenally with her training. And um, she's been hitting PRs that she just had a really great 5K not long ago. So, um, and then to see a bunch of our other runners out there on the course, just doing really well. Everyone had a really good day and just um it was just again that's I think I, I left there kind of on a high of being back into our April uh our April rhythm again it was really great to watch it was it was great to I know you had to watch it so let's yeah. <laughs> I wanna just touch on I, I want I want to touch on this because I really admire and respect your decision and I think it's a great example um you know you had actually texted me a couple days before Cherry Blossom and said I have a cold and I, you know, you were testing for COVID to make sure it was, and you said you were getting negative tests, but you're saying, I just don't feel great. And the night, it was maybe Friday, you texted and said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to see how I feel tomorrow, but I'm, you know, I'm iffy for Sunday. And yeah. Um, so what, so talk about yeah. it. So, you know, as everyone who's been listening to the podcast knows, I, I was hit with Omicron in uh, early January and that set me back for most of January. And um, just, you know, really haven't felt a hundred percent in my running since. And if I weren't a runner, I, I wouldn't notice, but I just can tell I'm just not exactly where I should be given the training that I've been doing. Um, so you can imagine my sense of dread when on Friday, Friday afternoon, I started feeling just a cold coming on and I just was like, oh gosh, do I have COVID again? Seriously? But it, it, whatever it was, it felt like a cold. And um, I texted you Friday and said, I don't know, Lisa, I'm not feeling so great. And then Saturday morning, I woke up with a full-blown head cold, runny nose, just feeling really badly. And um, it was not a difficult decision because I didn't feel well. And frankly, 
I also felt a sense of protection over myself in that I didn't want to exert my body, whether just a casual run or a race when I was sick. And maybe part of that was we have, we just recorded a, an episode with Dr. Kim, who we're having on next, who shared uh, some terrific information and we'll introduce him in a minute. But one of the points he made a lot during this episode is the importance of allowing your body to recover when you're sick and not just from COVID, but from any illness. And even if you're feeling, you know, 75%, don't just jump back into your training and certainly don't exert your body in a way that your body would have to stress more because that could just get you into a deeper hole. So having that in the forefront of my mind, coupled with the fact that I really just felt like shit, it wasn't a really hard decision. It just made me sad. And, um, you know, it wasn't that I was sad because I was missing cherry blossom in the sense that, oh, I haven't run it since in the spring since 2018, because of course in 2019, that was the year I tore my meniscus and I went down to cheer everyone on and it was canceled in 2020. And in 2021, I ran it in the fall. Um, I don't care about that stuff as much, but it was more just like you. I really wanted the opportunity to run a good solid race um, before Boston. Uh, I had run the Reston 10 miler about a month ago I did okay, but I knew I had more in me and I was hopeful that at Cherry Blossom, I could really give it a try and see how, how my fitness was. And it was also going to be a good metric for me to sort of determine how I was going to approach Boston two weeks later. So now, of course, I don't have that metric, but I am happy to say I'm recovered from my cold, uh, but I'm also being realistic. So uh, I've decided based on the fact that I've been sick, not once, but twice during this relatively short training cycle. And the fact as a result, I've had to squeeze a little bit more mileage into a shorter period of time than I ordinarily would like because of the looming deadline of Boston that I'm going to run Boston for fun. And that's hard for me to say that because I'm a, I'm a really, I'm a, I'm a goal setter and I'm a go-getter and I'm not somebody that wants to go up to Boston and run it casually. But at the same time, I think it's important to set a goal that's realistic. And I think it's really unrealistic of me to set a time goal right now, knowing that I've been compromised not once, but twice. And I just don't want to be in a position where I feel like I put myself into a hole during the marathon where not only am I not feeling great, it's not about time, but also I don't, I don't want to come out of Boston and feel like I put myself into a hole where I can't enjoy running for several weeks thereafter. So I'm so happy to be back. I'm happy that I'm qualified for 2023 and I want to enjoy the race. I want to feel good. I don't mind getting into the pain cave at all, but I don't want to get into the pain cave if it's going to compromise my health. And, and you have to ask like yourself too, is it, you know, what, what are the, what are the um, benefits here and what are the risks? Like the benefits, exactly. like you said, you're qualified for 2023. What is the benefit to pushing yourself for an extra little bit of time or maybe even a lot of time, but what's the benefit? There's nothing. It's not, you already have a qualifying time. This won't even count as a qualifying time for 2024. So all it would be doing is compromising your, you know, pushing yourself and straining your body a little bit more. So I think it's a, you know, it's a um, really smart decision. And I think, I, I do think a lot of people go to Boston with that attitude of like, you've made it to Boston. I think it's hard to go there with that. I've done that before where I've said, oh, I've just made it to Boston. I'm going to just do this for fun. And then, you know, you get caught up in the, in the adrenaline. But I think in your case where you have had, um, you know, a little bit of compromised training, it's not ideal training, but, um, but you're certainly prepared. That's the other thing is that you are not going in entirely unprepared and making a, a rash decision to run a marathon on, on no preparation or with a looming injury or, you know, really, um, you know, something that could, could harm your body. But, um, I think that's, I think that's a, a, and I think it actually in a way may be very liberating to go and just run it for fun and take it in and, and enjoy it and not have that, that pressure. So yeah. I think that's a great decision. Makes yeah. Sense. So, you know, I, I, I want to sit here and say that I'm making this choice, but I think the choice is kind of being made for me because I know my body and I just, and let's not fool anyone. I think your, your easy celebratory pace. I don't know, you know, what your plans are, what, what it's going to, we have to look and see what the weather is going to be like and everything yeah. else, you know, what happens between now and race day. But I think your time will still be probably pretty decent, if not another qualifying time, but no pressure, but um, you know, 
easy for you could certainly be still within our qualifying window. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, though. I, I, I'm giving myself permission to not stick to a time goal or pace, but rather go by feel because I don't want to put more pressure on myself. I, I already have to get the mileage in before Boston. So then to add another layer after this week of being sick, it's just not worth it. So that's where I am. But, um, you know, I it wasn't an ideal situation, but it, it brought me some clarity because I have been thinking, you know, I think so much about coaching our runners and their goals. And I don't think about my own much. And the past two weeks, I was like, well, what am I doing for Boston? <laughs> and I was kind of like, well, I'll, I'll see how I do at Cherry Blossom and that'll help guide me. And then I didn't have that data point. So that is the decision I made. And, and I feel like it'll also give me some reprieve over the weekend because we've got a lot of fun things happening leading up to Boston that we are both very focused on besides a race. And of course, one of those is our live podcast that we are doing on Saturday at three at um, four o'clock at the podcast garage in Boston, where we are welcoming two incredible guests, um, Megan Kripchi and Marilyn Bevins. And these women are both so amazing. And, and we had a meeting with our co-host, Cherie Turner, and we were talking about both of these ladies. They are just forces to be reckoned with for different reasons, but um, it's going to be a really wonderful live podcast and tickets are already sold out, but there is a wait list. So we will have the link in our show notes, but and it's also, um, we posted on social media. And for anyone who wants to go, that's hearing this for the first time, please get on the wait list because people's plans change. This is a free event and we understand that things happen and there will likely be people who end up releasing their tickets. So uh, get on the wait list and hopefully it'll work out that you can attend because it's going to be a fantastic event. And then our other event that weekend, of course, is our shakeout run. And this is our second shakeout run, but our third meetup. We've been doing meetups since 2019. And um, it's the highlight of our weekend for sure. And we did order some goodies. So it's certainly not a bribe, <laughs> but if you come, we hope we'll make it worth your while. And all paces are welcome. And um, we'll just do some easy jogging around the common, the Boston common to get everyone excited and ready for Boston. And we'll also be available to answer questions and just chat if you have anything you want to ask before race day, or just, we would love to meet and, and reunite with so many of you. And, um, and even if you don't want to run, even if somebody, somebody doesn't <laughs> want to run, they don't want to do their shakeout run or they're not running or whatever, like come see us before, come see us after we'll be there. At a little before nine o'clock, we'll run about nine o'clock for about 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes tops so with 20 minutes. And then we'll hang around for a while. So um, as long as the weather's good, but we will hang around. And like you said, we'll have goodies. And if you came last year and already got something, we have different goodies. So uh, come get the next, uh, you know, the 2022 edition of the Run Farther and Faster swag. And um, just come hang out with us and come say hi, because uh, that, like you said, that has always been the last since 2019. That's always been the highlight for me of the weekend. Like we leave that kind of like on a, on literally on a high of like just energized and like spastic a little bit. Yeah, Long for sure. Day. And then wait, Lisa, I have a question for you. So another highlight of the weekend that is returning is Hopkinton. While we do love the wave start, it is really fun to hang out with everyone in Hopkinton. Are we, are we wearing pajamas again this year? Are we doing Shoot. it? I'm so glad. Oh, so, so speaking of which we're going to, we're actually going to have a call with our runners on Monday and we're going to do a podcast episode that we're going to release on Monday, one week out from Boston. That's going to talk about prep and things that you might want to order ahead of time, but that is something that we need to get on. I, I think I still have my unicorn pajamas that we never I used have a couple of years ago. So if we have those, I will certainly bring those, but I had not even thought about that with the return of the athletes village. And, um, I definitely have mixed feelings of that. We talked to Dave McGillivray, uh, last week about that. And obviously very, um, uh, sound reasons for going back to that. It's really a matter of time that they have to get all the runners out and to do a, a um, rolling start. It takes a lot longer. It takes extra time. So they really have to go back to the controlled wave start. But I have to tell you, I love that last year. I loved getting off the bus, using the porta potty that had no line, doing whatever I needed to do and going in the going starting when we go to Hopkinton um you know just having flashbacks to 2018 having to sit in the freezing cold, cold pouring rain in our um motorcycle rain suits that we had fluorescent yellow motorcycle rain suits that we had 
you just don't know what you're gonna get. But it is a fun, it is definitely a fun part of the weekends. And especially if the weather is nice, it is a great way to hang out with, you know, friends and get excited for the race um, and wear our um, throwaway or our donatable uh, matching pajamas. So yes, I will double check and um, I will uh, just confirm that I have those, uh, that unicorn footy pajamas. Yeah. So that's another way we can maybe meet some of our community is if you see two unicorn. crazy women in unicorn <laughs> footed pajamas, that would be us. <laughs> Please come say hi. <laughs> if you want, maybe you don't. So anyway, up next, we are interviewing an incredible physician. Lisa, do you want to introduce Dr. Kim? Yeah. Speaking of, um, you know, you were just talking about kind of returning to run from either COVID or from any type of illness. Uh, one of our runners, Susan Spencer, um, who lives in the Boston area, had, had mentioned to us a few weeks ago that it would be really helpful that, you know, we, we talk a lot on our podcast and we've had guests on about returning to run after injury. And we had Rachel Miller on who was really helpful with, with that. Um, but she said, we, you know, she doesn't hear a lot about, and we haven't really discussed too much about returning to run after, after a virus or particularly after COVID. And a lot of runners are facing that this year. A lot of runners had COVID, they're back now, they may feel the same, they may feel different in their running. And so we thought, you know, that would be great. Let's get an expert. And uh, we did some research and um, we found Dr. Jonathan Kim, who ha happens to be an Emory alum and went to Emory um, graduated two years after me. So we overlapped while at Emory. He continued on um, to become a physician and he is currently an associate professor of medicine in the division of cardiology at Emory University. And he additionally holds an adjunct assistant professorship in the division of applied physiology at Georgia Tech. He launched the only cardiology practice in Atlanta to focus on sports, which is the Emory Sports Cardiology Program, where he works with the Emory Sports Medicine Center team of experts to diagnose and treat disease and works to prevent future cardiovascular problems. He is the team cardiologist for the Atlanta Falcons, the Hawks, the Braves, and Georgia Tech Athletics. And relevant to us, he's also um, a runner and the medical director for the Peachtree Road Race. And he is a member of the American College of Cardiology, the ACC Sports and Exercise Council, which is the organization that, um, that puts together and, and assists in the return to sport and return to competition guidelines. So he was somebody who we thought would be the expert to talk on returning to run after COVID about how COVID is changing the landscape of running and um, how it's affecting athletes. So we were so grateful to him for taking time out of a very, very busy schedule of, of, of seeing patients and, and supervising a clinic to take time to, to talk with us about uh, you know about returning to running after COVID and um, about running a Boston Marathon or any of these larger races that are now back uh, you know kind of under the under the curtain or under the the you know the, the um, shadows of COVID. Yeah, and just what I like, liked about the conversation too was it while it sounds like this is a big Debbie Downer topic, it actually wasn't. It was very uplifting because he provided some critical solutions and also provided information so that athletes can be problem solvers. And it's not just applicable to COVID, it's applicable to any virus you may have or any illness. And there aren't a lot of sports cardiologists around. It's kind of a new field. So uh, because cardiology inherently is treating people who are more unhealthy. So he's a cardiologist who's working with athletes. And so it is a little bit of a, of a niche. And as a result, he's kind of become the guru on how to treat athletes when their health is compromised. And look, we're all athletes and we've all been in that situation. So what useful information uh, he provides to everyone who's had any kind of viral setback in their training and kind of gives us all permission to take that seriously rather than kind of just plow through and hope for the best. Yep. And at the same time, um, I found a lot of reassurance that while COVID is certainly serious and it can pose some serious complications and there are plenty of people. Um, Matt Fitzgerald is one example. He was just on um, the Injured Athletes podcast with our friend Cindy Kuzma talking about his uh, struggle with long COVID. So while there are certainly, and, and Dr. Kim talks too, there are certainly athletes out there who are struggling with long COVID and the uh, effects you know, way after being infected with either a serious case or a very mild case. But there are, there, there are those athletes out there, but by and far, the vast majority of athletes are coming out of COVID fine. They're getting back to competition. Um, they don't need to go rush into a cardiologist's office to have a, a ton of testing before returning to, 
to play. So that, that to me was reassuring and, um, you know, just hearing him uh, kind of put it all in perspective and take us down a notch from our level of um, anxiety over COVID and what that means for athletes. I thought that was very reassuring. Well so, said. So we'll turn it over turn now. It over. To, so Lisa, I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a great week, Julie. Starting the countdown. Bye. Bye. Dr. Jonathan Kim, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. We are um, really um, honored and happy to have you here. So thank you. Uh, thank you for coming and, and talking to us today about a question that's on a lot of our, our minds and a lot of our runners' minds. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you two today. So tell us a little bit about um, your background as a physician um, uh, and, and how you came into um, you know, sports cardiology in particular. It sounds like it, from reading your background, it sounds like it may have actually happened in Boston, which is where we are headed in a few weeks for the Boston Marathon. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to specialize in sports cardiology. Absolutely. And, you know, my old mentor, still friend and close colleague, Aaron Bagish up there in, in Boston is one of the medical directors um, for the race. And that's certainly where I got most of where, you know, found my passion for sports cardiology and decided this is what I wanted to do. And, and I was really fortunate because it's a relatively new field, subspecialty within cardiology. Certainly the care of athletes has always been a part of caring, you know, as part of being a cardiologist in the eighties and nineties, it was all about sudden death prevention and concern about tragic cases of young athletes who die and trying to figure out the best way to screen for that. But the field has become, you know, very much larger. Obviously it's a whole discipline. That's all I do, um, which is focusing on the cardiovascular care of athletic patients, whether it's professional athletes, recreational athletes, young athletes, masters athletes, there's just a lot that is a part of um, the care of these individuals. Um, and each group has different concerns, but ultimately in the end, it, it gets back to, ensuring that there's a focus on their lifestyle habits, which are very important, which is obviously being involved in athletic activities. So when I was a resident, I, I was very unsure what I wanted to do. And it was around that time that a study was published uh, actually from the Boston Marathon, which looked at um, findings, cardiac findings in runners after they finished the race. And it was very much a physiologic study. Uh, and I just found it fascinating. I was very much interested as well in ECGs, um, or EKGs, uh, otherwise known as, and sudden death in athletes and how to prevent that. So all in all, it was kind of a perfect storm. And, and my mentor, who I just mentioned, um, he was already in the process of beginning a practice solely built on on, on these topics and, and to become a sports cardiologist, which didn't even have that term back then. Um, and as I worked with him, I realized this is exactly what I wanted to do, which was to care for athletic patients, be involved in research focused on athletes, and um, there's certainly more than just the two of us. There's people internationally, people nationally who are renowned experts. And um, it, it's, it, it's a smaller community, I guess, relative to just all fields in cardiology. But there's certainly many who are invested in the care of athletes. And uh, yeah, I was lucky. I mean, if, if I had come around 20 years ago, um, 25 years ago, I uh, would not have been able to, to really have this as kind of a desire to build a career around. So that's how it became involved or interested in a career. And when I came back to the South, um, there was an opportunity to build a program here at Emory and they were interested in my fellowship here, really specific under that uh, interest to be become a sports cardiologist and build a program. They knew that it was an up and coming field and, and, you know, it's all about wanting to stay at the cutting edge of science and we're having programs that are involved with all aspects of specialized care. And so when I finished my fellowship training, um, I was been able to build this program down here. So it's, it's been a really, really just tremendous experience for me. So how does one find a sports cardiologist and how does one identify when they would want to see a sports cardiologist versus a regular cardiologist? That's a really good question. Um, and I think I love doing these podcasts because there's there are obviously many of these and each probably intersects with a lot of different recreational athletes out there. And many individuals don't know about some of these fields. And so I'll have patients that will see me not because they know sports cardiology exists. It's because they're an athlete. They start having a cardiac issue or a reason that they need to see a cardiologist. So they think to themselves, hey, you know, I want to see somebody who 
specializes in athletes. And so they, they look that up and lo and behold, my program and others will come up and they're like, oh, there, there really is a sports cardiology program. But I think kind of spreading that message to athletes because there have been many times where I'll see patients where, where, where I will have been the third, fourth cardiologist because the prior cardiologists that they see don't quite understand their passion. So numerous things can go wrong. Number one, they're not taken seriously because they're a marathon runner as an example. And they'll be told, wait, you run marathons. Why are you here? You're fine. Because they're used to seeing sedentary older patients that struggle on the treadmill. And when they do exercise tests, these folks obviously can be on the treadmill forever, but they don't understand that you can certainly cardiovascular risk, cardiovascular disease, um, while exercise and medicine is not a vaccine, as I say many times. And there are plenty of athletes out there that have cardiac conditions that we have to take care of. And so they'll see me because they truly are suffering where they're having a symptom. And just because they're still able to run eight minute miles, you know, three months ago, they could run six and a half minute miles. And there's, there's a reason why they're struggling. And um, of course, many times that can be decon deconditioning or overtraining or all these things, but sometimes it can actually be a manifestation of a cardiac problem. So that's one example. Another problem is, is they've been diagnosed with a cardiac problem and their cardiologist immediately tells them, well, you can't run anymore. Uh, I, I have a perfect example of mine of a patient that I take care of who was told that exact story, had a stent put into one of their coronary arteries because they had a blockage. Um, it was actually a pretty uncomplicated procedure and they had a normal heart otherwise, the functions where they didn't even have a heart attack. It was just, they had a blockage and their cardiologist told them you can't run anymore. And, uh, and then went home crying. Uh, just, they didn't, you know, it was just because this cardiologist didn't understand like what this was to that person's life. They just couldn't, they couldn't relate. And then, so they sought me out and they came to see me and, and it wasn't that I was a rubber stamp, like, oh no, you do whatever you want. I mean, obviously there's certain in the times where a patient may have a cardiac condition that truly is dangerous for them to be continuing in triathlons or marathons or whatever. But in this case, there was really no reason why they couldn't come, you know, get back to marathon running. Uh, and just with appropriate medical therapy and time and making sure that all the risk factors were controlled, and on the flip side, she started crying because it was it was a tears of happiness, but just that appreciation of wow, this person, this other person just didn't understand. It wasn't any fault of that cardiologist, but again, it's just recognizing that in the big field of cardiology, there's so many different specializations, and you got to get the patient that you're taking care of in the right the right person who understands that and can work with that. Um, and then there's the third type, which is the one that really gets on my nerves, which is just somebody who is healthy and they are into ultra endurance exercise and they see a doctor and the doctor tells them, oh, you know, that stuff's bad for you, you shouldn't do it. And which is just a completely misinformed and uninformed statement. And, and you know, the, I get those as well. And those really tick me off because that may be your opinion, but it's just so irresponsible to say that to people when clearly that person or that practitioner who said that just isn't aware and they read, you know, there certainly are stories written out there that try to pitch um, heavy loads of exercise as quote unquote bad for you. And, and they just don't understand, you know, it, again, it's just not understanding. And, and again, it's irresponsible to say that to people and then they'll ultimately get to the right spot. So I think one, it's, it's getting folks to understand that they're out there. Um, and, uh, and you're getting ready to ask a question, but, uh, but you had also mentioned kind of when should they see a sports cardiologist, which, um, which is for sure when athletes have symptoms that are present during exercise, chest pains, uh, feeling lightheaded, passing out, excessive shortness of breath, even nondescript exercise intolerance, which would be that example of somebody who used to run a six minute mile and is now can't get past eight and a half minute miles. And there's really no explanation. So just a drop in terms of what they can do. Those are all reasons potentially to see a sports cardiologist. Does it mean that you have a cardiac diagnosis? Of course not. Um, but for, for sure, exertional symptoms are one that, that do require a bit of risk stratification, at least getting a a much longer history with that athlete to kind of figure out what's going on. Um, there can be other many causes that can lead to that that aren't cardiac, but those are the times where 
uh, an athlete should seek out somebody to kind of assess what's going on. doesn't mean that if I see an athlete that says, oh, I get these weird symptoms, my heart palpitates, you know, skips a beat here or there when I'm watching TV. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't let, take that seriously or stratify that, but it's the exertional symptoms that are the ones that are most concerning and, and, and the ones that we, we, uh, we evaluate uh, in quite in significant detail. That's great information. And, and what's confusing is that often we don't want to go to the doctor if we feel like we're being ridiculous. And the symptoms you just described, especially overexertion, that is also overtraining. So it's better to be wrong and go and see your sports cardiologist versus waiting because you feel like you're being too uh, particular with respect to your health. But is there like a governing board or a website or something that one could go to to identify a sports cardiologist in your area? That's a really good question. The answer is is, is, is no. <laughs> However, um, certainly uh, be getting, Google can actually be a very helpful thing at times. And, and typing in sports cardiology in probably the city you live in, and you'd be surprised what you may pull up. You may pull up programs such as ours. So I know Emory's will come up probably if you're Googling sports cardiology. Yeah, for sure. If you're out in the West Coast and you just Google sports cardiology, you'll pull up programs at Mayo, Cleveland Clinic, Emory, um, the Mass General program in Boston. But you can probably just put in some um, identifiers and see if you can find somebody close to your area. The other thing that can be helpful, I get a ton of patients here um, who are referred from other other of my patients who they're friends with. I mean, we all know that the community of recreational master's athletes is large, but small, particularly in the community. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, everybody's a member of a certain club or runs with, right, with people. Cyclists, I get so many of the same cycling group um, because they'll mention to their buddy, you know, like recently I've been feeling my heart racing when I'm so-and-so doing so activity. They're like, oh, you got to see, you know, Dr. Kim, you know, my cardiologist. Uh, I get way more of those referrals than actual referrals from like within the medical system, <laughs> either colleagues of mine, partners of mine at Emory or other physicians who don't necessarily know. Um, so speaking to fellow um, friends, riders, runners that, you know, like, hey, do you guys know of a cardiologist who sees runners? Um, and actually, as a piece of advice that my old mentor gave me, which has really come true to fruition, which is when I started this program, you know, his advice was you, you want to reach out to the communities, which I did in terms of um, just getting out outside of my shell of memory to the running stores, to the, to the, to the recreational clubs and give talks or roundtable talks. And then you start seeing patients and then you just became known, you just become known in your community as the, the running doc or the, the cyclist doc. Um, and, and that's really how it goes. And, and, you know, patients are really are, you know, some of the best advocates for sports cardiologists in the community because they appreciate that level of insight for what, you know, what your passion is and, and are very apt to tell, oh, you've got to see this person. Um, so if you don't have that, then again, I'd start with kind of that search around. And, and fortunately, there are some even big cities out there that don't yet have kind of an ingrained sports cardiologist. So, but, you know, in every practice, there's, there is a cardiologist that probably has, whether they're a recreational athlete themselves, or there's that person within that group that may not have a full sports cardiology program, but is just used to seeing athletes. So we're not that rare. I mean, we have, um, like within the American College of Cardiology, um, which is the big, you know, there's AHA and ACC, we do have our, like I'm a member on our sports and exercise council. We have a national conference every year. And so we obviously get sports cardiologists around the country. So there's probably not somebody too far away from where you live. That's great advice. And do you, or do you know, do other physicians or uh, sports cardiologists do telehealth? Are you doing telehealth or is there a way for people who don't have somebody near them to, to visit via telehealth? Yeah, man, you, you guys are full of great questions for sure. Um, and the answer is, is yes. Now, the only challenge with that is one of the very few positive things that occurred during the beginning stages of the pandemic was it was everybody had to have a means to see doctors and everybody, we were all stuck. And so I could do telehealth visits with patients anywhere in the country. And I certainly took advantage of that. That is no longer the case. So and, you know, if I don't have a license and we'll just make up a state, we'll say Virginia, which I don't have a license in Virginia, um, at, that patient would have to come to Georgia. Like I can't see them over telehealth. Now within the state of Georgia, this is still helpful because there are rural communities 
um, where, yeah, I mean, Atlanta is still 180 miles away, 200 miles away. Uh, and, the, and, you know, if it's a small community, there probably isn't a sports cardiologist nearby. And, and for sure, you know, I always like to have at least one in person, but many times with follow visits, even for patients that I have in Atlanta, I'll do telehealth if it's a blood pressure follow-up or to follow up results of a test. I, I think the beauty of virtual medicine is definitely never going away, which is a good thing. We should have been using it all along because it is it can make care for patients really convenient. But yeah, at, within state, it's doable. Out of state, now not so much, unless that doc has licenses in other states. That's a good point. That's helpful. Um, so you know, we were talking about you know, one of the one of the highlights of the of the pandemic, but. What what have you seen? You know, since we you know we've been facing COVID for the past few years, have you seen an increase in patients that are presenting with cardiac issues following COVID, and and what has that looked like for you in your practice? Yeah, that, that was a big concern early in the pandemic, and and you guys may be familiar with some of the guidelines we wrote for competitive athletes and the concern for inflammation in the heart after COVID. And that was all due to, in the beginning of the pandemic, sicker patients in the hospital had a very high degree of cardiac injury. And there was a lot more cardiac morbidity than you would see with the sickest patients with the flu that get admitted to the hospital. And so we were very worried about, was there a predilection for heart involvement just with this virus in general to where you may have mild COVID and be at home, but actually have inflammation in the heart. And for most of 2020, we didn't know the answer to that. And so we put forth these really conservative guidelines of athletes having to be screened before getting back to competitive training. Well, we now know based on really nice, robust registries of competitive athletes, they've all been of younger athletes, no large registry of like older athletes, but younger athletes that the prevalence of cardiac involvement is actually really low. Uh, and so we just, uh, through the ACC, we just put out our, our most recent set of guidelines, not guidelines, but recommendations, which we hope are the last, which are pulling back on what we said in the beginning, because we now know that there is not significant heart involvement in milder cases of COVID. And so athletes who get COVID, the good news is, is the vast majority of athletes who have COVID don't require any sort of heart testing or an EC cardiologist to get back to training. What we do recommend is that um, you take your time. Um, so even if you have mild COVID, let's say you have runny nose, bad sore throat, you know, your standard cold symptoms, but it's COVID. Um, once it's better, you don't just go back and do intervals the first day. You take a few days to build yourself back up just to make sure that you're not having symptoms concerning for heart involvement, which would be the same cardiac symptoms I mentioned earlier, chest tightness, shortness of breath, feeling your heart race or palpitate, getting lightheaded, passing out. Those are our really red flag symptoms. So this is, is advice I gave pre-COVID. I mean, I've always told my athletes because as you guys well know, masters athletes, recreational athletes have some bad vices, um, even though they're extremely healthy from an exercise standpoint, from dietary habits to, um, to, and to bad training habits, which is when you're sick, the best cure for a cold is go out and run 10 miles. Um, and I will, you know, one of the things that I really emphasize is that if you have COVID, don't do that. Um, let yourself get better before you start back to training, even if it's mild symptoms. It's not the right time to go out there and, and train through that viral illness. You shouldn't do that anyway, to be honest. I still feel strongly that even if you've got a bad cold, you should take rest. But for COVID, for sure, take your time. Um, and when you get back, so for the for like for you guys who are high end marathon runners, if when you get back to training, if you notice those symptoms, if you notice cardiopulmonary symptoms, as you call them, that's when you need to seek a doctor, um, whether it's a sports cardiologist, if you have access to one or an internal medicine doctor, primary care doc or a cardiologist, uh, that's when you want to be assessed and make sure there's no heart involvement. Um, th that's kind of the, the key take home message is. Don't feel like if you have COVID, you got to, you know, to get back to training for your marathon triathlon, you got to see cardiologists and get all this heart testing you've read about that pro athletes used to get. You don't. Um, it's, and, and even now, like we recommend that if you're an NCAA college athlete, or if you're on the Falcons, for instance, and you have COVID and you have chest tightness, we do screen, we, we don't screen, we evaluate you with testing because you had cardiopulmonary symptoms. We also have to remember that 
competitive athletes at the highest levels, a very small percentage of society. There's a lot of recreational athletes out there. And it's really not a valuable piece of advice to say, oh, well, if, if, if you have any of those symptoms, you need to go get an echo. No, you can't overwhelm the healthcare system. And more often than not, it's still probably not myocarditis. I think even for those who engage in a lot of exercise, even if you have chest tightness as a part of your COVID, get yourself better and just take your time with a slow ramp up back up. If the symptoms come back, if you do get chest pains while you start exercising, then yes, you need to see a doctor. You'll probably get some sort of evaluation to make sure there's no cardiac involvement um, and make sure it's not kind of the quote long haul, the dreaded long haul symptoms that have come in for a lot of patients. Um, so that is really important advice to us. I think for most people out there, even for those who have some of these symptoms, you don't need to go see a cardiologist. You just need to be smart. <laughs> you just need to be careful when you get back to exercise and don't be a cowboy in terms of running through this stuff or once you're better, just to try to get yourself back up to where you were, particularly if you were like sick for 10 days, if you really had kind of more mild to moderate symptoms, you couldn't do anything for 10 days. You just got to take your time. That's great advice. And um we have a lot of runners and um, myself included, and we've also seen lately a lot of reports from um, professional athletes who are dealing with, um, I wouldn't call it long haul COVID, but it's what you described. It's just taking a lot of time to get back to where one was before COVID. So your message resonates because it's not just about um, after the 10 days when you're feeling better, do a quick ramp up and two weeks later, you're back to doing your regular, you know, speed work, long run routine. It, it, there is, seems to be a wide variety of reactions to COVID. Um, and I'm talking about post-vaccination. So can you talk a little bit about what you've seen and, and if you have any uh, firsthand knowledge or data from your own patients in terms of when um, those who have had been sick been able to get back to where they were before? Yeah, for the most part, and I think this, this because there is data now to suggest that COVID is less severe for those who regular exercise. I think I saw that um, out in uh, on one of the social media sites about a recent study. So can't quote that reference for your listeners, but I, I'm fairly sure I just saw that. Uh, but it would fits with what we've seen, and certainly even in the registry data for college athletes that we've looked at in pro athletes, which is, again, that most COVID cases are mild. And the majority of athletes, thankfully, um, get better, and they, they, they can get themselves back to where they were. And that's been the majority of what I've seen. Have I seen long haulers? Yes. Have I seen those that aren't quite long haul? And there's different definitions for what truly is long haul, like the time frame, because it is a bit arbitrary. But certainly within a month, within four weeks of when you have COVID and, um, and, and, and up to that four week time point, sometimes that can just be slow to resolve COVID. I don't think I would call it long COVID if it took you three and a half weeks, that's still, but it is just COVID that takes a long time to get better. Um, so um, have observed that as well. Um, but the majority of folks, I do think get back to the baseline, which is good, but it's been hard to predict those who have long COVID. I mean, I've had um, there's one professional athlete that I saw who had really bad long COVID. Um, I have seen um, a couple college athletes as well. Um, not recently, though. This goes back actually around, like around 2020 or so. And then from a recreational athlete stand, standpoint, I have seen um, those that have taken a while to come back and those that still have. In fact, I saw a patient this, this morning who's a CrossFit athlete who still, I do think, falls in line with a long haul with the symptoms that this patient's describing. But they're getting better too. I mean, they're certainly like probably three months out, not completely resolved, but getting better. And so what predicts that time frame? And we don't know. I mean, that there's I know there's a lot of emphasis from NIH, a lot of research dollars put into that because there is a lot of the I don't knows with long haul. I, I think the advice I've given for a lot of the patients I've seen is number one, maintain that patience as best possible. Um, understand, yes. There's no magic bullet we can get, but we do think this is going to get better for most, particularly if you're a high-end active person to begin with and you're starting from a good baseline of health um, and staying active throughout. You know, you may not be able to do the type of exercise you want, but maintaining as much exercise as possible is really important because sedentary and uh, getting to a sedentary lifestyle deconditioning um, will make it worse for sure. Um, and so trying to maintain as much aerobic exercise as a part of the management as well. So Dr. Kim, my question for you is, 
at this point, we know what symptoms to look for, what people need to do to recover. What do you say to those who um, are asymptomatic, they know they tested positive, uh, and we know that there are recommendations from the CDC. Is there anything that you, though, as a sports cardiologist and what you've seen, is there anything in particular that you would advise for athletes, even if they're asymptomatic? Yeah, and, and you read my mind because I wanted to kind of get back to that too, which the question of kind of the graded kind of return to exercise. One of the things I forgot to mention is it should really, you know, can be individualized there too, meaning some people can go faster than others. If you have symptoms that are mild to moderate and you're really just out of it for 10 days, you're just sick. Well, obviously that graded return should be longer. If you are asymptomatic, um, and this is actually in the recommendations that we put forth to the ACC, and I think this can apply to anybody, not just competitive uh, athletes. You test positive because you were exposed and, and, and it's positive. Give yourself about three days, and this is a consensus recommendation, so we don't have evidence behind this, but I think it's a reasonable time frame to make sure that no symptoms develop. Because as mentioned, you don't want to train through symptoms, you know, from a symptomatic viral infection. If the symptoms, if after three days you clearly feel good, then you can probably get back to training. And that ramp up back to where you were from four days ago is going to go much faster because you've only had three days off and you never felt bad. So probably within a couple of days, you're going to be right back at it. Now, obviously you need to comply with the CDC self-isolation guidelines, because if you're starting to exercise at three days, we know you're still contagious. And so by no means am I advocating that you got decide to go to your LA fitness gym and start spewing virus everywhere on the treadmill. No, you got to do it responsibly, whether it's outside where there's nobody around you. Um, and, you know, again, you just want to be responsible and respectful of everybody. And so if you live in like a busy area, even though you're outside, I personally would not feel right if I had COVID and I went to like a park where there's people around and just thought to myself, well, I'm outside, they won't get it. I just, that bothers me a little bit, but I think if you're responsible where you're doing it outside, fine. Or if you, if you got a treadmill at home and you're indoors and you self-isolate while you're running, fine. If you can, there's some athletes that really can wear a mask when they do certain exercises. Um, then that's probably reasonable too. But again, you really want to be respectful of how close you are. Like, again, I would still be very hesitant to be COVID positive and be out in the gym. <laughs> Even if I could be away from people and have my mask on, it just seems socially irresponsible. Um, but I think you can, you know, if you're in a place where uh, you're in a well-ventilated place where people are nowhere around, and this is, we were thinking about this more for like a competitive collegiate athlete who can go to a, a very isolated training room and can be kind of in a spot where they can do things where nobody's around and they have their mask on. Yeah, you can do that. So you just have to comply with um, the CDC's recommendations. Or if it's within days five through 10 and you do have access to serial testing and can show that you're COVID negative, probably over two separate tests spaced a day or so apart, then I think even CDC would say then you're, you know, you're free from more of the, um, the self-isolation kind of recommendations for for public health concerns. That's a good point. And you mentioned, um, you know, being outside and running around other people. Um, and we know you, I think, are the, the medical director for Peachtree Road Race down in Atlanta. And, um, you know, as we head, get ready to head back to Boston and, and mass starts, do you, do you have any concerns? I mean, obviously the numbers are fluctuating. We're looking at this new variant that may be on the rise. Do you, do you have any concerns about mass races or, you know, mass starts or, or are there any risk factors that you see in races um, other than the, you know, the travel and that sort of thing that we all kind of know about? What do you think about races returning to normal, especially these big races? Yeah, uh, that was, all, it's always been an issue and a concern. I think we have seen because, it, for instance, Peachtree, we did Peachtree last year. We did it over two days. We separated uh, and there were reduced numbers. So I think we had 15,000 runners separated uh, per day and and they were they were more spread out uh, but clearly being outside makes a difference and that was kind of the point I just made again if you are known positive that there's there's probably some you know clear things you need to think through in your mind about is this is really the right thing to do but we were thinking about maybe you just don't know you're positive and you're asymptomatic and you do one of these races for the others out there being outside is clearly less risk than being indoors particularly indoors with poor ventilation so 
and you know the reality is is too is yes we're worried about ba2 um i know it's kind of the numbers are bumping in europe etc but right now in the united states obviously our numbers are really good and hopefully it stays that way we'll have to see how things pan out over the next month or so with ba2 but if there's a you know so boston right which is in a couple weeks um, I would have no concerns um, about running Boston with a full number, you know, with full set of runners, et cetera. I think based on community spread being so low right now and just where we're at, um, I would have no problem with it. That's music to That's our ears. <laughs> we like to hear that. So um, just as we start to close out, let's um, talk to us just a little bit about vaccines and, you know, the efficacy of vaccines. If you've seen now, you know, improved um, outcomes now that we have vaccines, um, vaccines in athletes, um, you know, any athletes who may uh, be worried about getting the vaccine, you know, how, what, what's your, you know, what, what are you seeing in terms of, of now, um, you know, that we have vaccinations, widespread vaccinations? So there's data to look at for this too. And, and we know that the highest risk group for vaccine associated myocarditis are going to be um, young men who are adolescent to young adulthood. Um, those are the, that's the one group where these cases have been observed. But when you compare them overall, like with, it, it's still rare, all right? So again, this is just, this is a relative compared to everybody else in different demographics and age groups. Um, the other thing is that even taking their somewhat increased uh, risk into account, looking, comparing that to the risks of COVID and COVID myocarditis, as well as death and other morbidities, the long haul um, is substantially lower. There is not a shred of, of doubt in my mind when I recommend to all of my young athletes, including my young men athletes, get vaccinated. Uh, because, um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, yes, if you're young and healthy, your risk of dying, we know, is, is much lower. But the risk of long, that the long haul risk is a real risk. Uh, and as I mentioned, we discussed earlier, um, we still see it. I mean, yes, as I've mentioned, the majority of the athletes I take care of have done well and they get back to their baseline, but I have definitely, um, my share of long haul athletes that are still suffering. And I tell that to my athletes when we talk the discussion of vaccination of you don't want it if you can help it, um, because you're, you're just, you're mixing in all these other potential risks beyond just, um, you know, myocarditis and, and death, it's, 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 it's um, you know, it's the risk of long haul. And for vaccine myocarditis, the other thing is that the cases that occur are typically milder and are all self-limited, uh, meaning the athlete, the, the individuals who have it get better. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's really should be, it is recommended to all and boosters for all for sure. Uh, thank you for articulating that. And, and with respect to boosters, uh, just yesterday, there was an approval for boosters for folks over 50. So um, with that being said, for those who are considering getting a booster, perhaps before a big race this spring, do you have any guidance as to when to optimize getting your booster mm -hmm. versus then racing and the timeline between the two? You know, usually the side effects that one gets the natural kind of rise in inflammation are self-limited within a day or so. So yeah, it, would I recommend training through feeling, you know, whether you get a fever or chills from normal vaccine associated uh, effects, which, you know, again, just tells you the vaccine's working. No, of course, you're going to take that day off. Do you need to, um, can you get boosted during a, a training, um, like while you're training? Sure. You just, just plan that accordingly in terms of where that fits in maybe with a rest day. Uh, obviously, I would say, probably not good to get your booster the day before the Boston marathon because <laughs> you don't just in case you don't want to feel poor on the day of the race. And, and I say that in jest, but really more just to, to emphasize that you don't need to block off like a week or say, well, I can't do anything for two weeks. Um, I think, and really, even if uh, let's say you get back, you're one of the lucky ones that get vaccinated and you really have no side effects. I don't think you need to take any time off. Um, you can probably train the next day. It's just those that if you feel those systemic side effects, take that day off, let that go away and then go back at it. That's great advice. And um, 
you know, just as we close out, uh, any any words of advice or encouragement you have? We have, um, you know, a lot of runners for getting ready for Boston or, or just other um, spring races and training. And there's a lot of um, uncertainty or fear or, you know, people coming into it feeling like, you know, it's a different year. It's a different it's a different process. Any any words of advice to runners, particularly marathon runners, in terms of, um, you know, taking care of ourselves, making sure that we're staying healthy in general, but specifically through kind of these COVID times? Yeah, no, I, I think we're all so thrilled that these races are are back, uh, and really they've been back. I know there's there's Boston's obviously not the first marathon to kind of be quote unquote back, um, and it's it, it makes you realize how you can take that for granted um, for a while, particularly not just marathons but just any race, um, local five k to have all that canceled for so long was just really tough, right? So, so I, I yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think embrace it. Um, I think there are some good learning points though, moving forward, you know, that we can take away, which is kind of what symptoms to watch for. Again, regardless of if you had COVID or not, um, what are the concerning symptoms to watch for that you want to get checked out? And I really think that message as well of respecting a viral infection. I mean, it's not just me. Many of my expert colleagues around the world have said this for years and we give talks, which is respect the virus. And this was before covid coronavirus existed, SARS-CoV-2 existed. Uh, don't train through viral infections. It's just, uh, it's, it, it doesn't, um, it's not gonna impact your baseline conditioning, let yourself get better. It's just a really good take home point. Um, and then lastly, for those who unfortunately had COVID because chances are all of us, I mean, it's just the reality, we're all at some point gonna get exposed. And hopefully by the time we all, for those of us who haven't had it, the time of exposure is when it is, is truly endemic and really mild for everybody. Um, but that, uh, and, and you know, maybe this will change, but for now that taking it slow, uh, you know, once you're able to start exercising, you feel better, there's, don't kind of force up the, the training ramp up, give it time, make sure that you can equilibrate. Some people ask me, well, how do you do that? Is it a certain percentage heart rate? And the answer is, is if you don't have a personal trainer to really gauge that, it's all qualitative. And I think that's the best way because anything I would say today would be completely made up about, well, you can go to this heart rate and this percent today. And then two days after that, just got to listen to your body. You know, the, the goal is qualitatively give it a, give it a few days. And, and as mentioned, if you have a very mild case or asymptomatic, this ramp up can probably will probably move much faster than somebody who was in bed for seven days and really wasn't feeling good for 10 days while they had the virus. For those folks, it is really going to be a slow ramp up and there's just no reason to rush, you know, um, and, and, and kind of listen to your body as you kind of build up. That's great advice and a great reminder, like you said, for, for athletes who tend to want to push through everything and um, ignore some, some, some of the symptoms or signals that our bodies are giving us. So we are really grateful to hear science-backed, um, you know, experience-backed uh, advice and encouragement for Boston, especially that, you know, that we're going to be okay for Boston and hopefully um, for Peachtree this year when in, in July. Do you have any races on the calendar for yourself? I know you mentioned you haven't done marathons in a few years, but do you have any, are you signed up for anything? Uh, not not yet uh, there's there's you know there's always with the atlanta track club in the city there's always 5ks all the time so i just haven't had a chance to but for sure i'm looking forward to kind of getting back to it myself yeah you've just been a wealth of information and um you you are really just um to tell you, such a great doctor not just because of your medical knowledge but the way that you're able to explain things so clearly and uh that's sometimes a rarity so that's a true gift and thank you for sharing your gift with us and talking with us today, we know you will help many of our runners and listeners, and you're helping us as coaches to continue to advise our clients, our runners, to ensure that they are able to optimize their running if they should have any kind of viral infection, not just COVID. So thank you so much, Dr. Kim, for joining us today, and uh, have a great spring, and good luck with all your racing and with Peachtree planning. Thanks thank so much. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.